When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express Card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, everyone. I'm Wilmer Valderrama. And I'm MR Raquel. So before this episode starts, I have a quick warning for everyone. Uh, uh-oh. Is everything okay? Yes, everything's okay. Uh, do not listen to this episode hungry. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. You're about to hear about fresh produce and saucy vegan burgers. So if you have a snack, grab it now. Okay, now that everyone is properly prepared, let's get started with something heavier than a snack. MR, 2020 was an incredibly difficult year, as we know, but not even just with the pandemic. There was so much more going on. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, when I think about 2020 and 2021, I definitely don't just think of the pandemic. I mean, these have been years full of social and political upheaval and Black Lives Matter protests, right? And calls for abolition and creating a police-free future. And all of this became part of the dominant public narrative in the wake of the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and Micaiah Bryant and Dante Wright and Daniel Prude. And devastatingly, these folks are just among some of the special and loved family members, parents, children, siblings, members of this country who were killed by the police in the last two years. So in addition to the calls to action to end police brutality, these protests ignited a long overdue reckoning with systemic racism in all aspects of daily life. And as so many of us continue learning how to be better allies, one small option became widely suggested that was deceptively simple, supporting Black-owned businesses. Yeah. And so on today's show, we'll speak with Liz Abuna, who is the owner of 40 Acres Fresh Market. 40 Acres is a pop-up market, a grocery delivery service, and soon-to-be brick-and-mortar store on the west side of Chicago, which provides fresh produce and affordable products to the west side community. She'll share with us what inspired her to start 40 Acres, along with highs and lows of being a small business owner and how the pandemic, as well as the protests, affected her business. After speaking with Liz, this week's roundtable conversation is with actress, entrepreneur and investor Keisha Knight Pulliam and with Pinky Cole, the creator of Slutty Vegan. 
Keisha co-founded the Fearless Fund, which invests in women of color-owned businesses, and she's also an entrepreneur herself. Pinky created Slutty Vegan, which is an ecosystem of plant-based burger restaurants in 2018, and now there are three locations with more planned. She also started the Pinky Cole Foundation to help bridge the generational wealth gap and invest back into her communities. I love speaking with Liz, and apparently our producers were on the call with Liz before I joined, having a uh, bachelor debrief sesh, which I was so mad I missed <laughs> because <laughs> Let um, me tell you. I am a bachelor connoisseur. <laughs> As someone who's actually admittedly never seen a bachelor episode, I still Wait a had- minute. You're not living life. I know, I'm sorry. Uh, I still had a lot of fun, though, listening to all the drama being recapped. I'm sure you did. Liz's story starts now. Hi, my name is Liz Abuno. I am in Chicago, Illinois, and I am the owner and operator of 40 Acres Fresh Market. Liz, so happy to talk to you. I was excited to talk to you about your business model and what inspired you to start 40 Acres. And I thought that uh, that's a good jump off point to talk a little bit about you and what drove you to start this as well. I am originally from New York. I moved to Chicago in 2012 to go to grad school. And if you don't know Chicago, it's really big and you really only stay within a handful of neighborhoods. You don't go everywhere. And in every neighborhood that I've lived in, it's always been super well resourced with like grocery stores, banks, restaurants, just basically all the basic goods and services you want in a city at your fingertips. So one day back in 2016, I get off the 66 bus on Chicago Avenue and I realized I need cash and I couldn't find a bank at all. Not even my bank, any bank on this corridor. I couldn't find a CVS or a Walgreens to like go buy one thing and then get cash back from that or do it at a grocery store. And so I'm like, okay, that's food, commerce, and health that I can't find on a major commercial corridor. And I'm looking around and I'm like, this is a black neighborhood. Hmm. The neighborhoods I've always been in, not predominantly black at all, but in this black neighborhood on a major commercial strip, I can't find basic goods and services. And that experience did not sit well with me. And it opened my eyes to inequality and inequity in Chicago and this tale of two cities that's often talked about here. And so I think that experience let me come back to where I live with a new lens of looking at the things that I just take as basic as why can't this exist over there? And there was a produce market that I shopped at all the time that had great inexpensive produce. And all of a sudden I started shopping there and thinking, why doesn't this exist over on the West side? Somebody should do that. Somebody should do that. Somebody should do that. And eventually somebody became 40 Acres Fresh Market. Where did the name 40 Acres come from? I was applying for this alumni award from the University of Chicago, and I was going to apply with this idea of a fresh produce market on the west side of Chicago, but I needed a name for it. And so I thought about what I was doing, and I'm like, okay, it's about fresh produce. And I'm like, how do I tie this to the land? And then all of a sudden, 40 acres and a mule came to my mind, and it evolved into 40 acres fresh market. But the idea was to come up with a name that was culturally relevant, that spoke to our history in this country, and particularly our tie to the land, because I find it a cruel irony that the descendants of this country's first farmers often live in communities where they can get nothing that comes from the earth. And so I wanted a name that said to us, this is for us. We deserve this. This is our birthright. We should expect this. 
maybe share a memory or or a moment that made you go, oh, this is where my passion is. This is why I do what I do. There's been multiple moments. When we started, I started with pop-up markets, meaning I went into an existing neighborhood space, like a community center, a church, and basically converted their community rooms into a fresh produce market for the community. Like some type of bodega, you know, like a... Yeah, like I would just bring in tons of fresh produce and set up tables and display it all, put up paper price signs. It was, it was very minimum viable product. Yeah, it was ground level. I love it. Yeah. What are some of the differences between the pop-up market and delivery service? Because I know eventually during the pandemic, you had to be introduced to a new way of thinking. How do you mobilize when people can't commute in some of these public community centers? And how did you evolve that thought and see opportunity? With the pandemic, those spaces basically closed down on us because everybody was closed. So we couldn't do our markets there. So it was March 13th. We were supposed to have a market. We closed it down and we put on our website, just order delivery. We'll give you free delivery for the weekend. And orders started coming in first really slow. And then we're like, wow, we just got five orders in one day. We're like, we've never gotten five orders in one day. And then by a week later, we were getting like 10 orders a day, 15 orders a day. And by the end of the month, we were doing more revenue in delivery than we'd ever done in pop-up markets. And we came up with a program called GoGo, which is get one, give one. So we knew that something was happening with the pandemic, that people were becoming more food insecure, and that some people were immunocompromised and couldn't go out and get food. So we offered the option on our delivery site When you buy a box for yourself, you can buy a box in five, 15 or $20 increments for a family in need. And people just started clicking that. We started getting delivery orders on the north side, on the south side, downtown. And so it's really kind of given us a mix of customers. And what I thought was really cool is that on the west side of Chicago, because there are so few goods and services, so much of the disposable income gets spent outside the community oftentimes in more affluent, predominantly white communities. So you have money from black and brown communities, basically subsidizing affluent white communities. Now with us, you finally have people outside of the West Side shopping with a black-owned West Side-based business. That wasn't happening before. So what are some of the inequalities regarding food accessibility that your business addresses? There are certain things that I think are basic. There were things that when I was looking for my apartment, I was like, I want to live near public transportation. I want to live in walking distance of someplace where I can do my grocery shopping. I want to live near pharmacies, bank, so I can do my day-to-day stuff without having to get in my car, without having to travel far. It's just all right there at my fingertips. And in a major city, I think that they should be expected. In many black and brown neighborhoods in Chicago, they are not. So the neighborhood we operate in is called Austin. Austin is the second largest neighborhood, both population and land-wise. It is seven and a half square miles, 95,000 people. It currently only has two grocery stores. It lost a grocery store in the middle of the pandemic last December. It had three. It only has two until we open our store next year. In comparison, Lincoln Park on the north side has about 66,000 people. And in a smaller area and over a dozen grocery stores for them to choose from. So that's just one aspect. It's just like the volume. I actually had a meeting with um, somebody from Wintrust Bank yesterday and she asked, how can I support the community? 
And I said, I don't even know how to answer that because from where I grew up in my experiences, I never thought of banks as community support. They were just a part of the fabric of what was there. You're not there. Like you can run all these programs and stuff, but ultimately you support communities by being there. And in major cities and even in rural areas too, a lot of businesses have just foregone being there. They'll set up shop like a mile away in a predominantly white neighborhood and service the black and Latino clientele from the neighborhoods where they refuse to go and then tell the people in those neighborhoods, oh, you don't have enough business to sustain us. And I just, I call bullshit. It's that kind of inequality. It's like, you'll take our money, but you don't value us as consumers to be present where we are. Maybe you can speak a little bit about how you feel about it, knowing that you've also successfully become, you know, a solution. For me, I didn't feel some responsibility to go in and save a community or anything like that. For me, my MBA mind was more along the lines of like, there's an opportunity here. There's a customer that's not being served. How do I serve this customer? And I think oftentimes in communities that are under-resourced, that are quote-unquote underserved, that are dealing with the legacy of segregation, that are dealing with the legacy of redlining that are dealing with the legacy of white flight, the only solutions we get are philanthropy. It's like, let me throw charity at this. And I'm like, that has a place, but what about bringing these communities into the larger, broader economy, the mainstream economy that we all benefit from? There's people here, they have needs, they have clothes on their back that they buy, they have food in their stomach that they buy. Like, Why are we not treating these people and valuing them as such? When I think about this conversation and I reflect on some of those iconic moments in the protest last summer and what surfaced, which is support Black-owned businesses, tell me a little bit of your perspective and how do you feel about that considering what we just mentioned? We, We benefited from that. We had two bumps last year. The first one was in March when the pandemic first hit and, you know, stores were out of stuff. And people also had a very keen understanding of support local businesses. Then as that fervor kind of started to wane after a couple months, George Floyd happens and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery and the Black Lives Matter movement comes to the forefront. I knew when it was happening that this is a moment. So get while the getting is good. I knew that people will not sustain that level of passion indefinitely. What I will say is that I think people thought that I can buy this one time from a Black-owned business. I can post this hashtag. I can shout defund the police and that's going to fix everything. And the fact is you do not change 50 to 60 years, hundreds of years, just in different forms of second-class citizenship, of segregation, of economic segregation, of neglect in three months, in six months, in a year, in two years. And so part of it is just like, why should I have to capitalize on this moment? Why won't we get in there and do the work? Because honestly, the work is not linear. It's not like I do this and then it gets this result and then it's good forever. It's not how any of this works. And it also puts a lot of pressure on Black entrepreneurs and Black organizations. 
how does supporting Black-owned businesses help the community as a whole? And also we think about how we set up the next generation of Black-owned businesses for success. Well, one, I think that Black-owned businesses were mostly sole proprietorships. Most of us like cannot grow and scale. And the thing you need for growth and scale are customers and capital. When we can scale, like when 40 Acres scaled, what did I do? I hired people. And Black-owned businesses are far more likely to hire other Black people. They're likely to be small businesses. So small businesses tend to spend their money closer to home. They may not have all national suppliers. Like all of our suppliers are local. So those dollars start circulating within a community. That sales tax stays within a community. There are primary, secondary, and tertiary effects of supporting Black-owned businesses. When Black people have more money, they have more wealth. We become a bigger piece of the tax base. Like It benefits society as a whole when our communities are whole and healthy and thriving. And part of doing that is making sure that we have an ownership stake in the homes, the land, and the businesses. You feel that's the message you could leave for future Black business owners by understanding not just their role and responsibility, but the excitement of creating something that's going to eventually thrive within not just your community, but do the crossover like your company. My advice is think long and hard before being an entrepreneur. It's hard. <laughs> I, think, I mean, honestly, I think entrepreneurship gets glamorized. And I will say that I started my business after having like a 15 to 16 year career after going to grad school. I was in a position where I could focus 100% on 40 acres because I had savings. I was in a position where I had opportunities because I had cultivated a network through education and my professional background. So my goodness, I would say be prepared in the words of Scar. Um, it's something that you prepare for, but I feel like if you do prepare and you have an idea and you have something to offer, start small, start slow, build traction, gain supporters and go from there. It's very doable, but it's like having a baby. I swear there are days where I'm just like, whose idea was this? And how do I kick them? Because they need to take over for me. But like, I can't just get up and walk away now. You know, I have employees, I have investments in this. Um, once the baby is born, you can't put the baby back. Um, so I've heard it's the same way with the small business. Well, I, I mean, I'm going to leave it on that note. I think this will get more powerful than that visual. Okay. Yes. So Liz, I want to say thank you for your service and everything you've done and I continue success and I hope your business continues to thrive and grow and grow and, and make that national. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on today. Wow, I'm in awe at Liz's resourcefulness, but also feel sadness at the lack of services she described on the West Side. What about us, though? She took her NBA skills, identified the need in the community, and literally became the service to address that need. I know. Liz is such an inspiration. And I learned so much by hearing how the protests during the spring and summer of 2020 impacted her business. But I think what I take away most from Liz is that she has a heart centered around community and being a community resource. Yeah, she definitely does. And I'm going to have to take a trip to Chicago and visit the store once it's open. Amar, hey, I'm not even going to ask you. You're coming with me. Heck yeah, I am. <laughs> yeah. And when we get back from the break, we'll talk with Keisha, Knight, Pulliam and Pinky Cole.
When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously, shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. We're here today with Keisha Knight-Pulliam and Pinky Cole. Pinky, hi. Keisha, hi. I'm so excited to be here with you today and um, hear your thoughts about Liz's story and about your various business ventures. So, Wilmer, want to kick us off? Thank you both for being here with us. I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Um, you know, just to kind of kick things off a little bit, what are your reactions from Liz's story? And uh, let's start with you, Keisha. You know, it's not unique, unfortunately, to a lot of people who aren't black and brown, it sounds so astonishing, but it's a very real reality. Just the access to a lot of our communities just isn't there, whether it's to fresh fruits and vegetables, healthy foods, banks, you know, the things that many of us take for granted just isn't there. So I really applaud her. I love the fact that she's doing what she's doing and, you know, especially how she has pivoted with just all the changing of the times to create this delivery-based and subscription-based model, I think is really awesome. And, you know, yes, she's creating something that is definitely serving a need within communities who don't have the access. But like she said, she's also creating an economic base that is then hiring more Black and Brown people, that people of all races, of all socioeconomic backgrounds, of locate, like all of these things are also able to support and are able to tap into. Yes, it is a black business, but from what I've researched, because I started kind of looking her up and it looks super dope. That's a great product. That's the other piece of it, that she's doing something, she's filling a niche, filling a need, and she's doing it well. Wonderful. Yeah. What are your reactions, Pinky? I agree. Um, you know, it's interesting when I was listening to her story, I'm like, this is my story. This is the story of the modern woman entrepreneur who really goes into a place to create access where there was never access. So the real problem here is how do you create access when access doesn't exist? I'm dealing with the same thing. And just even through her energy, I'm like, damn, this is like a big feat, something that we have to conquer every single day. Because for example, Slutty Beacon as a business, obviously we're not a grocery store, but 
I can identify with the idea of going into underserved communities, going into places where the resources are lacking, right? And educating people on why this is necessary, why you should understand that knowledge is key and eating better and living better will make for a better, bigger picture. So I commend her for what she's doing, especially in Chicago. Now is a time for us as black and brown people to be able to have access to those resources. And I applaud her and other entrepreneurs that are doing that and being so selfless in that because she doesn't have to help people in our communities eat better. She don't got to do that. Right. She clearly is an educated woman. She could do other things. But to be able to like put her whole self into a space where she's providing opportunity through resources that just speaks volume. So like I was moved by it and you know, that's somebody that I could definitely connect with because we are on the same trajectory. Mm, thank you. Thank you so much, both of you for your thoughts and thanks Pinky. You know, it's, it's so true. Liz didn't have to be the person to become a community resource and yet she saw the need for a service. So she decided to fill that space. Um, which leads me to Slutty Vegan, Pinky, which you just brought up. Um, so what's the story with Slutty Vegan and why vegan food in particular? First of all, Slutty Vegan is an anomaly, right? So by definition, Slutty Vegan is a plant-based burger joint that sells vegan burgers, fries, and pies. But it's beyond that. It started there. But Slutty Vegan is an ecosystem of people who help other people reimagine food. I created this concept just simply off an idea in my bedroom and I made it racy and sexy because I wanted to create dialogue in our communities that gets people excited about infusing healthier options into their lifestyle, even if it started at vegan burgers, fries and pies, right? But how do you do that? You got to incorporate sex in it because sex sells. So as a former television producer, I took the two most important experiences in life, that's sex and that's food. And I merged them together and I created what you now know as one of the hottest concepts in a country that serves vegan fare. But when I say it's bigger than just vegan food, we really pour money back into the community. We provide access and resources, just like the young lady was talking about. And we provide opportunity for other entrepreneurs through the foundation and through all the things that we do. So I like to call Slightly Vegan a brand that happens to sell burgers, fries, and pies because we do so much for our communities. And we're such an inspiration to people who want to either be entrepreneurs, who want to start foundations, or who want to pour money back into their communities to help people succeed inside those ecosystems. Wow, that's amazing. Thanks so much for sharing that, Pinky. Uh, you know, my stomach is actually just literally grumbling. I'm going to have to come to Atlanta soon and try a burger. Um, and, you know, you just mentioned community and you also mentioned that Slutty Vegan isn't just a restaurant, but it's an ecosystem that in turn supports the community. So can you describe the neighborhoods where you've opened your restaurants and, and why it's important for you to channel funds and resources back into these communities? Absolutely. So I'm very intentional about everything that I do with the brand. So it's surrounded by authenticity. So I specifically go in food deserts food insecure communities, areas that lack vegan options, and areas that aren't as attractive to big time developers. Why do I do this? I do this because one, I wanna raise up the community. If I go into an area that's right in the heart of gentrification or just about to get there, then I can raise the property value of that said community. And then I can also support local businesses, be able to make more money because now I got a line down a block. So if I got a line down a block and they're in the area, then nine times out of 10, they're gonna patronize the businesses that are nearby. And then beyond that, I also play into the real estate idea that 
Not only do I own the business, but I own the ground and the dirt. So I buy the property and own it. So I get it for cheap. So it's almost like, for example, I'm going to Birmingham, Alabama. I paid $75,000 for two properties. And that two properties is going to raise the value of the neighborhood, beautify the neighborhood, help local entrepreneurs, and be able to funnel money back into the community, which is that ecosystem that I talked about. So we're very intentional how we do that. You know, people may see this as, oh, they just sell food. No, it's really bigger than that because in our communities for so long, we have been suppressed because we have lacked resources. So I am being the change that I want to see and showing people that you too can be able to create opportunity around yourself, around your business and within the community. And it's been working. And I think that that's part of the reason why Slutty Vegan has been so successful because we're intentional and mission driven about what we represent and what we stand for and what we want to come in the future for the business. Yeah. That's badass. <laughs> She's saying, yeah. That's just so badass. <laughs> She's saying, yeah. Um, Kesha, what is Fearless Fun? You know, let's talk a little bit about that and what inspired you to co-found it. Well, one thing about me is anything that I do, it's never about just lending your name or your voice to, but it's something that has to have authenticity and synergy with who I am as a person. You know, Pinky's talking about being a solution to a problem. Liz was talking about doing the same thing. But the reality is, as Black women in particular, that is what we do. When we see a problem, it's about being a part of the solution and not continuing to be a part of the problem, thinking someone else is going to do something, someone else is going to solve it. So specifically with Fearless Fund, when we co-founded that, it was really about solving an issue that we saw. We realized that, you know, when it came to women of color and businesses, we were the fastest growing, but we were the least funded. And we had to change that dynamic. And the only way to change it is to be on the other side of the table and being an investor. And that's what we did. And, you know, how we spoke earlier about everything that went on with Black Lives Matter, but it did create a very special moment in time where so many people's attention and not only their attention, but their pocketbooks were very much dedicated to supporting financially any cause that had synergy with that movement. So as a result, Fearless Fund, we set out to solve a problem and we had no clue just trying to prove our thesis of investing women of color, investing in other women of color business at the pre-seed, seed and series A level. We were proving the thesis, okay, we're going to raise this $5 million fund, which is nothing in the venture capital world. Now, several years later, because of all of these different movements and the attention that has been brought to the plight, it's a $30 million fund, which still, at the end of the day, isn't a piece of the pie in terms of when you look at the greater scheme of things. However, it's created a space where we have brought light to an area. You know, and that's the great thing about what I do. It's not only doing the work behind the scenes, but when you've been given such a platform of visibility, as you know, you know, when you're in front of cameras and acting, people are so interested in what you have to say and what you're doing, but really about how are you going to use that platform to pay it forward? How are you going to use that platform to create light and visibility for the unseen and the unheard? And that's what anything I'll do. I believe when it was the Tamron Hall, I partnered with Mayel Organics to do a business school for entrepreneurs, a program that's culminating in us doing an amazing trip back to Africa, where it was a million dollars worth of scholarships that were given. So for me, anything that I do, there has to be that piece 
that is very true, authentic, and genuine to who I am, and also has that component of give back from my nonprofit, the Kim Kizzy Foundation, which is over a decade old, which is all about empowerment and self-esteem for youth to every part of me. There's so many different tentacles. Having been working literally since I was nine months old, I'm grateful to be at a space where, you know, I can really do things that I'm passionate about that really have the opportunity to move the needle. And, you know, it's crazy how small of a world it is when you're in this kind of world of, um, you know, like Pinky and I, for instance, like Clark Atlanta graduates, Spelman College graduates, Sorors, our circles and paths intersect in so many ways that it's amazing to be able to know and support one another. Because that's really what it's about, you know, behind the scenes, how can you champion, how can you do what you can to ensure that we're all successful? Because one thing about me is I always operate from a space of abundance and recognizing that what's for me is for me and what's for you is for you. And there's enough for everyone. Um, That's the bottom line. How can we help make each other great? We'll be right back. After this break, when are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through global dining access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When something happens to your car, you might say, No! My car! But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to Essential Voices. Pinky, you created the Pinky Cole Foundation. Uh, what is that foundation about? If you could tell us a little bit about that too. Well, it's just a formal way to justify me giving all my money away. <laughs> That's real. That's um, real. No, no, it's real. Listen, let me tell you something. As a kid, I saw my mother help everybody. When I say everybody, like I had cousins and sisters that I met for the first time that lived in my house. I probably didn't live on my own until I was, what, 30 years old? Because I saw how much my mother helped people and I absorbed all of that. So I became my mother. So throughout my life, I was always helping other people um, as I've gotten older. I just love to see people win. So when I created Slutty Vegan, this was just another opportunity to be able to continue to help people and just to formalize it. So I started the foundation in 2019. And basically, the Piggy Co. Foundation is just a way to bridge that generational wealth gap. So we know the disparities in our communities already. So I wanted to be a beacon of hope for people who want to have opportunity but don't know how to get it. So through that foundation, we've done so much. And I'll just name a few of the things that we've done. Um, 
at Clark Atlanta University, paid their debts off for 30 college students so that they could walk across the stage. I partnered with Impossible Foods and Jermaine Dupri so that we can get people excited in our communities about the election that we just had so that people can understand why it was so necessary. And I believe that we helped to change Georgia blue. What else did we do? Uh, local businesses in the area, we paid the rents for those organizations so that they didn't have to close in the middle of the pandemic. We've given out thousands of pounds of fruits and vegetables. Um, we've partnered with the Steve Harvey and Marjorie Harvey Foundation to provide lights for local families in Atlanta. We've done so much. Just recently, I partnered with a local business, um, Big Dave's Cheesesteaks, to provide black men who make $30,000 or less with life insurance that they don't have to pay for. They get to choose their beneficiaries and they get to choose their policies. But I say all that to say that this is the real success for me. So when you think about the success of Slutty Vegan, and yes, Slutty Vegan does well. We make money. A lot of people love the brand. But what makes my belly leap is to be able to know that I've been able to utilize my resources and my platform to help people. And we've been able to do that through this foundation. I'm so happy at the success that it has gotten so far. And what it really did is define us as a philanthropic movement first that is a brand that happens to sell food. I'm just really excited about the impact that we've been able to make. That's so amazing, Pinky. Thanks so much for sharing that. You know, you've worked so hard to make an impact on your community and serve your community by believing in yourself and your vision. And it sounds like there's been so much incredible work behind the scenes to get where you are today. And though maybe it hasn't been the easiest path, it's just it's so inspiring to hear about. Um, and bringing the conversation back to Liz, she shared with us some challenges that she and more broadly that black and brown business owners and burgeoning businesses face. And we also talked about how supporting black and brown businesses bolsters the community ecosystems that you're talking about, Pinky, and community building in general, like we're all talking about today, despite a lack of investment into these businesses from the beginning. So what systemic overhauls would you say should be undertaken to address these challenges so that black and brown and minority-owned businesses can thrive? And why don't we start with you, Pinky? Well, for Black-owned businesses in general, and I highlighted this a little bit, but we need more money. We need funding in order to be able to grow from a mom and pop to a business that is scalable. And these private equity firms and big companies have to trust us with the money so that we can continue to grow. I think that there's a lot of trust issues when it comes to big companies being comfortable with investing the capital into Black-owned businesses. But I also speak on the idea that we also need more resources so that we can be better entrepreneurs, right? So we talk a lot about access because we lack access and information. We kind of like fall a little bit behind when it comes to our business and how we grow our business. And all it is is a matter of information. So if we can be provided that information and that access and money, then I believe that Black-owned businesses will be able to grow in the way in which we know that they could. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, Pinky has really covered the majority of it because that's what I was going to say. It's the access to capital and it's the disparity in the knowledge gap. Unfortunately, a lot of black and brown are first generation who have graduated from college, which is the threshold where we don't come from generational wealth. We don't have a legacy or a trust fund that's going to invest in our first business. We don't have the godfather who owns this bank who can fast track the access to capital for us. So 
you know, that's a really big one. And then Pinky also touched on, you know, a lot of times, even if the capital is there, a lot of people are like, well, why don't you just get it? But it's not always that simple or that easy because you may not understand the steps that are required to scale a business. What does that word even mean? How do you, if you're looking for venture capital funding or if you're looking for funding, period, like what is a series A, a series, what do these things mean? And how do I position myself to be able to acquire these things? Or does my business even need these things? We don't have to talk about predatory loan rates. Like that's a whole nother. It's so systematically ingrained from every facet that is really hard to, in a snapshot, identify it. It's from legislation down. It's in terms of the tax laws. It's in terms of the laws that are not only federal, but, you know, state understanding those things, understanding how to navigate through those things, you know, we haven't been privy to that information. And a lot of this information isn't necessarily found in a book, but it's passed down through life experience. And if we don't have the connection to the people who possess that knowledge, we don't have access to that knowledge. That was one thing that we found in the beginning days of Raising for Fearless is, you know, we're having these meetings with these really high net worth individuals about venture capital who look like us, who have no clue what this is who we're having to educate about this because it's hard enough trying to get them to cut the check to support because they don't even know what the hell we talking about. And then a lot of times people don't want to acknowledge what they don't know. People are so afraid of looking like they don't know that they're not smart, that they don't recognize that you can ask questions. Like the only way you're going to learn is to acknowledge what it is that you don't know. You know, sometimes as a community, people want the appearance versus being like, this is the reality of where I am. It's good enough. I am deserving of it. But now it's time for me to build upon this. Or even being vulnerable enough and understanding that it's going to be a journey. It is. Sometimes for us, you know the drill, we got to get up a little earlier. You know, we have to swing a little harder. We have to walk a little farther in order to get to where we're at right now. Our ability to know that it, it does take work. It may take double the work. But it is possible for us to achieve it, right? Let's get out of that mentality like, well, it's because I'm not white. There's always a little bit of that half-empty conversation. And I don't know if it's passed down or is that is you know, multi-generational thing, right? It is. A lot of times lack is in ways that we don't even recognize surf on the surface. That's like right. I know there's certain certain things that I had to deprogram that are meant for the good. Don't get me wrong. Like my dad didn't mean it when he said, you know, money is is hard earned and easily lost or, you know, different things like that. It creates this mentality and we have to hold on tight. It's our trauma. That's what it is. And and it's not okay, Right. And we have a long way to go. It's funny that we're talking about this because I'm going to be totally transparent and vulnerable here. Like it took me a long time to understand like equity and like safe notes and all. I'm like, what is that? I don't understand what this is. Right. I could have literally lost my business because people were coming to me and I didn't know what I was doing. And if we have the resources to your point, MR, like programming is key. More programming in our communities to teach us those things that they aren't teaching in school then I think that we would have a better advantage. But again, like you said, woman, it's a two-way street, right? So we can go out and also research and find, because Google and YouTube University was my best friends, right? But programming definitely will help our communities to be able to better position ourselves in business. 
what advice would you give entrepreneurs of color looking to start a business that addresses similar needs and serve the communities? And let's start with you, Pinky. Uh, well, first of all, uh, money should never be the driving motivation. Oftentimes, in entrepreneurship, whether you're black or white, we talk about business and we talk about money first, right? But I believe that the businesses that are the most intentional and operate through the ethos are the businesses that are the most successful. So for somebody who is trying to start a business, make sure that it means something in your spirit, that you are in alignment with that business and it's bigger than you. Then you create that business to serve a niche and to serve other people. If you create a business to serve other people, the money is going to come, right? Like you're going to become a magnet to money, but focus on being the gift that continues to keep giving and that business will immediately grow. That's the first thing. Secondly, when you're starting a business, really work on the problems, the pressing problems that people haven't found a solution to yet. People start businesses all the time. People start businesses that have certain needs in communities. Look at the problems in the communities in which you live in and focus directly on one specific issue and master that issue and find the solution to that issue. And then you can begin to grow and say, okay, all right, this is also happening in my community and I want to change that. But if you get so laser focused on what the problem is in the community in which you live in or you serve in and work on that, then once you have that and, you, and you've really been able to promote and uplift that said community, then you can continue to add on problems and find solutions to those things. But entrepreneurship is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when it's mission driven. When you have intentions to a business, it makes you sleep better at night. You know that you're walking in your purpose. You know that you're helping other people win and creating opportunity and access and resources to other people so that the day that you take your last breath, you know that you've created a legacy for people, not just you in the physical form, but the idea that the things that you thought about created change in the communities in which you lived in. I mean, Pinky, you hit the nail on the head. There's not much more to say, but, you know, the one thing that I would add is find a mentor, find someone who has done it, that can guide you, that you can learn from their mistakes, that you can, you know, bounce things off of. I, I feel that that's really important. So often people say they want to do something, but then they don't seek out the person who has the blueprint. One thing I will add when you are asking, what can we do to change the dynamics? Vote, be a part of the process. There's such a level of apathy among young people who is like, oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, it no midterm presidential, like all of these. You have to infuse yourself because a lot of times we forget that our government are representations of us, our needs, our desires and are there to protect us. And we have to be a part of that process. Kesha, Pinky, I, I'm so blessed and so happy. I know Mr. and I are incredibly inspired by this conversation. Thank you very much for your time today uh, and your patience and very, very excited for the world to listen to both of your thoughts. So I thought we were just going to Chicago to visit Lizzie's 40 Acres Fresh Market. Turns out we're definitely stopping in Atlanta on our way back to California to stop at Slutty Vegan. You in, Mr. Okay. Do you even have to ask? Of course. <laughs> but wow. Oh my God. What a phenomenal conversation. And you know, Wilmer, you often talk about ecosystems here on the show. So I really loved hearing Pinky use this term as well, referring to how she sees her business as so much more than a business, capital B. 
Pinky is sustaining a living, breathing ecosystem that bolsters her community, and that's just so inspiring to hear. It really is. And how cool is it that Pinky was a recipient of funding from Kisha's Fearless Fund? So this ecosystem continues of black and brown communities helping one another to turn dreams into reality. All three of our guests today talked about the lack of funding that goes towards black and brown or minority-owned businesses. When we talk about creating a future we want to live in, one huge step towards that is diverting funding to these black and brown-owned businesses, investing in the future where minority-owned businesses can thrive. Yeah, you said it, Wilmer. I couldn't agree more. And just quickly, I want to take us back to the beginning of our episode for a moment because we brought up abolition and police brutality, and we're not just glossing over those topics. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we'll have an episode that's all about abolition and community organizing and Black Lives Matter and so much more. Thanks for bringing that up, Imar, and thanks for the reminder. Now, I'll chime in here and say that here at Essential Voices, we want our listeners to know that we're not glossing over such urgent topics. Which brings me to what we have on deck for next week. Next week, we'll speak with essential worker, Dr. Lance Whitehair, who is a doctor for the Diné Nation, also known as the Navajo Nation. And we'll have a roundtable discussion with the president of the Navajo Nation, Jonathan Ness, and with Ali Young, Diné activist and founder of the Harness Program, Protect the Sacred. Essential Voices with Wilmer Valderrama is produced by me, M.R. Raquel, Allison Shano, and Kevin Rutkowski, with production support from associate producer Lillian Holman, executive producers Wilmer Valderrama, Adam Reynolds, Leo Clem, and Aaron Hilliard. This episode was edited by M.R. Raquel and Sean Tracy and features original music by Will Rosati. Special thanks to this week's Essential Voice, Liz Abuna, and to our thought leaders, Keisha Knight-Pulliam and Pinky Cole. Additional thanks to Gracie Goodman, Max Doublefield, Rachel Garfield, Kara Sachs, Nia Bakersville, and Cami Gutierrez. This is a Clamor and WV Entertainment production in partnership with iHeartRadio's My Cultura Podcast Network. For more podcasts from iHeart, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. When are you an American Express member? When you travel with the American Express Platinum Card and have access to Centurion Lounges at over 40 locations worldwide, you're a member. When your American Express Platinum Card gets you seated at exclusive tables at renowned restaurants through Global Dining Access by Resi, you're a member. When you arrive at live events through dedicated American Express card member entrances at select venues, yeah, you're a member. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita prevnar20enespañol.com. 
Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. When you buy a new house, you might say, Shut the front door. Winning. No, seriously. Shut the front door. We own this house now. But you actually need to say, Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. That's right. The local State Farm agent is there to help you choose the coverage you need. Welcome to my crib. <laughs> no one says that anymore, but I don't care. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois.